I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Hi, everybody. We're here with Malika Balakrishnan, who is an MPhil in Latin American Studies. And today we're going to be talking about No Tech for Tyrants and organizing around um, technology corporations. So hi, Malika. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. I'm excited to be here. So maybe like let's start a bit um, just like to give some background about you and No Tech for Tyrants. Um, So what is it? How did it start? And sort of what's the vision? Sure, sure. So No Tech for Tyrants is a student-centered collective. We're UK-based, and it's a bunch of folks organizing at its simplest, just organizing for a better world using tech and migration and higher education as the locus of that work. Um, So we started last year, we're only a year old, um, around the No Tech for Ice protests and some of the excellent folks at Mijente and No Tech for Ice in the United States became aware that there were several people doing related work at UK universities. They put us in touch and the rest is kind of history. Um, We started as sort of the UK branch of No Tech for Ice, but in the year since, we've really like blossomed into something that's become a very horizontal and generative space for research, for agitation, for education. Um, So we do research like reports, we do campaigns, petitions, consciousness raising, like teach-ins, reading groups, all sorts of cool things. Um, And we really just focus on trying to mobilize our collective voice um, and thinking about tech as a very embedded part of these powers of structure here at the university and globally. Um, So I feel very, very astounded, honestly, by, by how much growth and momentum we've seen in just a year. Um, And I credit that a lot to the moment, but also to these just brilliant organizers we have across the UK who are just, I can't even begin to describe how like smart and and wonderful they are. So maybe like, what's an example of of one of the um, key things you guys have organized around? I don't know if you wanted to talk about No Tech for ICE and and how that started. Sure. So about a year ago, I was in Scotland um, and I, I came into this work from advocacy around um, or against ICE detention in the United States. Um, And so I noticed that one of the companies that helps facilitate ICE's work was recruiting on my campus. And so I phoned a friend. I said, hey, do you want to go, you know, flyer around this, educate people in line for this company that like, hey, the company you're about to sign up to work with does this, this, and this. Did you know that? Um, And so that's kind of where we started. But then a couple months later, we, you know, continued that work by partnering with the refugee advocacy organization on campus and with, I think, like a, like a Democrats Abroad organization to raise awareness around the campaign. We met with the administration to lobby for ethical guidelines around the types of companies that were allowed to recruit students on our campus. And you know, from there, we turned that into an opportunity to raise consciousness and educate folks in, you know, the computer science department, for example, around the kinds of things that you might hear when you're being recruited by these companies about, you know, like, well, what if you're concerned about ethics? And so, again, there's an example of how 
the work started from from this small seed, but really developed this multifaceted approach that that's very cool. Yeah, one of the things that really strikes me about how you guys are organizing is that you're focusing on the university. And I think actually, like your mission statement, correct me if I'm wrong, is severing the link between higher education and violent tech. Um, and that seems like so important on just like multiple levels, like one, because as you mentioned, this is where like universities recruit, but also because, you know, universities, academics, think tanks have such power to shape the conversation that we're having around tech. Um, and so there is like a new study out called the Great Hoodie Project that we, we've talked about before that just found like so, so many academics who work on tech have funding from technology corporations. And it was comparing this to this tactic to like big tobacco. And there's also been comparisons to like big oil about how, you know, this is very similar to how those companies took control of the conversation. Um, so in general, like through your work organizing and like talking, like being a student and talking to students, like how do you find that this tech conversation is happening on campuses? Do you think there really is a tech lash or is it mostly just like business as usual? I think that your comparison to big oil and big tobacco is really apt there. Um, in my like, personal experiences, the students I've talked to seem eager to use their work for good. And I think there is a higher awareness, but you bring up a really great point that I mean, so much of the work happening and research happening is funded by big tech. Um, and I think this raises larger questions about the funding environment and possibilities and, and the landscape of how higher education is supported and not supported. and what that means in terms of who we depend on for funding. Um, I think part of what is so important to me about the work that No Tech for Tyrants does is taking, you know, all these humanities scholars, for example, who will tell you opening, you know, the first page of any book that there is this important link between knowledge production and technology and power, and then seeing how that manifests and unfolds and continues right in front of us here at home at the university. Just understanding that these connections are things that happen only in the abstract and, you know, only overseas, but very much in, in our own communities, right outside in our own departments. Um, and just sort of opening the possibility that there is another way that this could be that universities don't need to reproduce these types of, of violences and, and, borderednesses. But yeah, I mean, like even this year with, you know, Palantir is a great example of a company that people tend to be relatively more aware of some of the contention around, around partnering with Palantir. But even this year, I mean, the University of Cambridge, I think one of the colleges had Palantir as a backing sponsor for, you know, some sort of like do good research challenge. And mm -hmm, yeah. I think there's an example of where, you know, there, it is hard to not accept funding when the environment for funding is, is limited. And I, I'm hopeful that that is one of the things that can change. Um, and I'm hopeful that questioning and complicating this recruitment pipeline, the tech talent pipeline, if you will, um, is one of the ways that we can leverage some collective power around changing that. Yeah. And so then do you think then, I mean, there's like a question of like the academic funding, which like, as you 
like rightly point out is a huge systemic issue, which, uh, you know, touches across multiple industries. But do you find like in your work organizing around that like tech talent pipeline, do you find that like students are receptive to what you're saying? It depends. I think it is very hard to it is hard for me as an organizer to like talk to someone and have them say something like, well, I want a job that can pay my bills so I can survive under capitalism. So I'm <laughs> going to sign up to yeah. like work with this company. I, I have to remember that I think that if you are being recruited by XYZ company, it's likely that you can get recruited by a different company um, at that level. I, I like to to remind folks that there are opportunities and alternatives, even if they're not as high profile in their name, but it is hard at the end of the day. And I, I think I would be remiss to, to not acknowledge that, you know, one of the factors in this is people want to be able to afford to live. Um, there's also this notion of, well, I won't be directly involved in some of the more questionable things. I'm just going to be, you know, developing in the back room. Nah, right? <laughs> and then there's this other thread of, well, where do you draw the line? If I, you know, if I say I'm not going to work with them, then, you know, I should not buy clothes from this place and then I shouldn't yeah. use products from there. And then, you know, is there any ethical consumption under capitalism? And I, it's, it's a hard question, but I think despite all of those things, students are receptive. And I have found that a lot of students are really eager to think about the ways in which there might be a different paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, but it is important for us to be funding alternatives and, and really encouraging them so that after this first step of saying, okay, well, the status quo is not how it should be. There is an alternative for students to step towards. And I think that's very important too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things I certainly experienced like as a humanities major at Stanford in Silicon Valley, that there was like kind of a general feeling at times that like engineers or like technical folks were very like dismissive of the idea that like political theorists could add anything to the conversation. And like the title of this podcast is very deliberately the politics podcast about tech. Um, so, so what do you think is the ad value of like, I know you do political theory. So like what, what is the ad value of the political approach to tech? If you agree, it's valuable. Um, and like, what do you wish that like quote unquote techies or maybe people who are more on the engineering side would like, learn or think about in universities as, as they kind of go forward through these, these industries and jobs and positions of power? That is an excellent question. And I, I cannot imagine what the environment was like um, at Stanford around this. But I think, I do think there is a, an immense value in approaching technology as political to the extent that I, I don't think a so-called apolitical approach is is really one that understands technology in its situatedness. Um, I think developing the sort of sensitivity to power and political impact and differential impact, that is crucial. And I, I think that is an important part of the work that good technologists do and are doing, I should, I should say, um, 
you and I both know there are there are so many incredible technologists who have who have been doing this work. Um, I think there is, of course, caution merited around, you know, parachuting in a political theorist who's going to say, ah, well, this technology is an example of this, this, and this theory of, of structural <laughs> relations. And I think it is a it is a challenge for people in you know political theory and, and philosophy to understand where that dismissive attitude comes from. And I think that's an interesting challenge to understand where our canonical approaches from the academy might not adequately reflect the lives and experiences and histories that really do shape the intersections of politics and technology. And so I think overcoming that challenge and, and making sure when we say a political approach to technology, we are you know, reflecting the voices that matter um, mm -hmm, and reflecting mm -hmm. the, you know, the violences and the liberations that matter. I think that is important. Um, and so I think beyond just, you know, requiring an ethics class for every person type situation, which, you know, as a baseline, I think would be great. Um, I mean, you, you know, there's this, this phenomenon in which ethics has come to mean just regulatory ethics. Um, and so I think there's a lot of work to be done in say computer science departments to engage not just with, you know, an ethics class, but also the burgeoning disciplines of science, technology and society studies or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Other, other work that goes beyond just teaching, you know, well, here's three ways you can think about, you know, justice, but really grounding that in, in the social and political implications of how these technologies are used, not as an afterthought that you add into your technological education, but for anyone for whom that kind of relationship of, to politics is a possibility, but really understanding how embedded those those structures of power are in in the tech itself. I guess one of the things that so I'm thinking is like there's sort of two ways that we see technology corporations themselves sort of like address or like try to incorporate more political aspects. So like one. Um, as you pointed out, is actually having engineers or techie people study politics um, or, or, or incorporating offices into like l their corporations that are like the AI and ethics or like, I don't know, I think, you know, the human rights office or whatever and getting either technologists who work on these issues or specifically lawyers or, you know, humanities, social scientists, people or whatever and putting them in the corporation. And I'm wondering, like, do you think, especially since you, you like, organize around, um, like, some of your, you, your guys' movements have organized around, like, the, the companies themselves, like, do you think that, like, corporations themselves can have an impact? So I'm thinking about, like, the recent, um, like, Google's recent firing of Timnit Gebru, for instance, like, you know, she was supposed to be somebody who, like, was bringing the, like, ethical or, you know, somehow more political approach to Google and they just shut her down, right? And so so does it matter if like what's happening in in the corporation's bureaucracy themselves, if like the people at the top or the CEOs or like the system itself is making um is making the real decision? Like do you think that these corporations can be reformed in, in air quotes? Yeah, I mean, with the recent case of, of Dr. Gebru, I mean, there's just so much to say on that. On, on a recent call, I think one of our organizers summed it up really well by just saying that this one moment reflects 
the tip of the iceberg of so many structural and deep-rooted injustices that characterize big tech and especially how big tech treats the brilliant black women who have just been yeah. leading leading movements and, and leading incredible research and work. Um, and I think I, I am hopeful that this moment is a wake-up call for a lot of people around how tokenism and regulatory ethics washing and ethics theater really um, characterizes a lot of big tech approaches to I guess encompassing this notion that you know they have an in-house ethicist and now everything's going to be fine um, look oversight board <laughs> yeah I mean this is something that really like boggles my mind sometimes I mean when I think about ethics as just like a word that we use to describe this and I think there's a lot of really well-deserved caution and skepticism around the term AI ethics now. A lot of people yeah. are just sort of done with the term AI ethics. Um, it just makes me really think about, I, I think it's very easy to say on the one hand that these companies just do not care about the things that we care about. And so their ethics boards are a sham. But that is one way of looking at it. I think Another way of looking at it that puzzles me and keeps me up at night a little bit more is this idea that some of these people really do think that they are working to make the world better, but the way that they go about doing it and the things that they find to be acceptable are just so radically different from the lived realities of, of often marginalized communities on the ground. And, and that dissonance is, is haunting to me. No, I actually wanted to to, to jump off that because I don't know if you read James Scott's um, the he's the Yale professor who does a lot of stuff on the anarchist history of things. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually just wrote a blog post about like using James Scott's like seeing like a state um, yeah. book where he talks about like the high modernist approach to so many things in history. Like he talks about um, like forestry in the 17th and 18th century. He talks about redesigning like Paris and um, Brasilia, just like all of these top down, like Soviet collective farms, like all of these top down, um, uh, let's say campaigns through history to like socially engineer people where they're just like, we finally have the technology and we finally have the like systems to be able to like make this efficient and optimal. And they just go terribly wrong because like, people are people and organic systems are like impossible to like code or like capture somehow from a top-down approach and comparing it to like what Facebook is doing or like what mm -hmm. these tech companies are doing where like like you said like some of them sometimes you think like maybe they really do think they're doing good they just think they need to be in control of doing good you know <laughs> yeah I mean and again, there's an entire conversation to be had around like the political values and the political vision that really, I don't think coincidentally at all, undergird the vision of some of these companies. But you mentioned James Scott and, and like organizing a little bit. And that just reminds me very much that, you know, when you ask, do you think that these like boycotts can actually have an impact? I want to be clear that I think they really do. 
Um, I think Tech Won't Build It was a watershed and No Tech for ICE and Mi Gente in the US, those organizers have done amazing work around mobilizing students to withhold their labor power to say, you know, I won't work for you if this is what I'm working for. And that is hugely powerful. Um, and I, I really do strongly believe that, um, I guess just like workers organizing has this incredible potential to, to shift this incredible disparity of power. I mean, bosses need workers. And I think collective mobilization around that and just sort of stubbornly hoping and imagining and then acting on that imagination is, I, I have to, to think that that is, is possible um, and useful. Yeah, it's a, especially, I think the companies themselves know that. I mean, all of the recent reporting around Amazon and like the Pinkertons and yes. like, oh, they're trying yeah. so hard to stop labor from organizing um, because they know it's important. Um, and so, so one of the things that got brought up, so Lena Khan, who's, you know, as you probably know, is the just incredible antitrust lawyer who, who did the yes. um, Amazon antitrust paradox that really just like changed how, how we thought about the monopoly approach to big tech. And one of the things that she has floated and was floating around after the House monopoly report um, was like corporate governance reform. And so like one of the things that characterizes these tech companies is that they have incredibly like just like absolutist monarchical like corporate structures, like even compared to other corporate companies. Um, and Andrew Ganato has been on the podcast before talking about how Peter Thiel um, was actually very influential in in um, in designing that and making that that um, um, like framework or paradigm a very popular in Silicon Valley. So I guess you know the other thing is so like no no tech for ice for instance is like organized around a very specific policy where you're like okay this is the policy we don't like and we don't like that the corporations are supporting this policy like we're gonna organize to to change that policy. But do you think that like corporate governance reform or like corporate structure in which like maybe these corporations like are like should be forced to be designed to be more democratic even to just like their employees is also a solution or do you do you think like the problem is like the policies like it's like oh you're supporting like x policy which we don't like i definitely think it's both um and so i am very sympathetic to the call for big tech being broken up and to utilize an antitrust approach to, to really investigate the sort of monopoly framework that, that gets sort of adopted by Silicon Valley, um, as, as I think you pointed out. And I think, yeah, I mean, there are so many multiple lanes in which this work has to be done. And I, I very much think that while, you know, further regulation and, you know, withholding from partnering with agents that are using certain policies that are that are harmful. Um, it is very much a broader structural change in terms of the way that the tech industry is allowed to work that that is necessary. I, I very much do feel that way. So let's talk about um, some of the tech companies that you've organized or, or researched around. So um, I read your No Tech for Tyrants report on Palantir, which you were a co-author, which I thought was just fantastic. Um, so maybe we could talk like specifically about Palantir and about that report. And it was focusing on its links with the UK government. 
Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and like its background and like kind of what troubles you the most about like Palantir and its like contracting practices or its practices in general. Absolutely. So I think a couple, maybe a month ago, we, No Tech for Tyrants, released a report with our friends at Privacy International. And the report is called All Roads Lead to Palantir. <laughs> and so it, it jumps from the fairly publicized NHS data deals into exploring the way that Palantir, beyond the NHS, is working to embed itself within the UK government more largely. And so it raises these questions about why the public hasn't had a say in who has access to our data and why there has been so little transparency around these contracts. Um, so as you, as you know already, the NHS contracted with Palantir to allow them um, to manage data around um, COVID-19. And I, I think this springboards into a larger pattern of technology being used to try to combat COVID or to help the COVID efforts in a way that I think can be important, but deserves a lot of caution around making sure there are clear stops and controls into what we're allowing to, to become normalized in times of crisis. Um, but in, in terms of the UK, what we found in this report is that the NHS is not the only UK authority working with Palantir. So the cabinet office, the Ministry of Defense, the Home Office, and a bunch of police departments have also had or currently have ties with Palantir. And this is concerning not only because of Palantir's track record, but also because of the lack of transparency around all of these contacts. I mean, like in the course of our research, we sent, I think, 11 FOIA requests, and we received, I think, four responses. And that is extremely concerning. Um, and so I think it, it does, and I know you, you've talked about this in other venues, it, it raises questions about the notion of public and private partnerships and, and sort of who we trust with our, with our data and with our power. Um, I think something that troubles me quite a bit about Palantir in particular is, and this is just me personally, um, is the way that it is couched their work is couched in, in the idea of wanting to make the world better and to protect it. And I, mm -hmm. I think it is easy enough for me to ask, okay, well, better for who and at what cost? But it, it makes me very uncomfortable, frankly, to consider that we might hold prima facie identical values and that, but that in making those decisions, it is allowable for, for people working on these, on these tools to, for these tools to have such costs on, on marginalized communities and for that to still be an acceptable part of what they consider to be a world vision that that they see as liberatory and that you know is confusing to me and, and thorny mm -hmm. so wh what what specifically like what costs on marginal communities do you think that palantir has or have you found that they have so one great example is how ice in the united states uses palantir's tools and used palantir's tools to facilitate some of the, the biggest raids that happened in Mississippi on factory workers in, I think it was 2018 or 2019. And that led to quite a few deportations and, and family separations. And so there's just a really clear example of how the tools that are used to, I guess, track and, and target migrant communities, for example, are, are not 
are not divorced from from this political impact that they have. Um, and beyond Palantir specifically, there is also you know a huge pattern of these types of technological tools being used to surveil and track um, communities of color in policing, especially. Um, and I won't I won't go on the tangent of how you know this all relates to to the violence of policing and of borders and of prisons, but these things are very relevant and and related. And I I think again these these tools are deepening the violence that continues to separate people, to track people, to make them subject to algorithms that have, you know, the power to, to decide their fate um, at borders and at prisons and at universities too. Um, and, and that is dissonant and that should change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like a, what, like a interesting question because I think one of the things that strikes me about Palantirs is, is like one, it's one, the policy. So like, for example, like being used for, for deportations or family separations with like, which as a, like as a policy by the government, like I don't support and you don't support and we can say like this policy is bad. And then there's like a question around like legitimacy, which is like, what is the entity making these decisions regardless of like what the policy outcome is and like Kara Cordelli has this new book out called The Privatized State where she's talking about like the power of government and it being delegitimized by this outsourcing um and it's interesting the way like these these the organizing around these tech companies have happened so I'm thinking of like Google and Project Maven and, and Palantir and ICE which was like organizing around a corporation to not support a government policy so like do you think do you think even beyond just like corporations not not supporting certain like policies that we don't like there's like a problem of like legitimacy where it's like it's a problem that palantir a private corporation has like the power over your data or like the like the power of the algorithm to make this decision even beyond like the harms that that actual policy is causing yeah, so I mean, just first off the bat, I want to be extremely careful about um, clarifying for Palantir and in particular, um, they're in their contract with the NHS, for example, they, they make it very clear that the NHS does retain the intellectual property rights to its data. Um, and also, I should clarify that we're not, I don't allege that Palantir's tools specifically um, make child separation happen rather that they are contracting with ICE and ICE is, is using technologies to, to facilitate these separations, um, just to make sure that's clear. But I think you're, in short, my answer to your question is both. I think that tech companies should not contract with ICE. I don't think anyone should contract with ICE. And frankly, I don't think ICE should exist. But um, so on, the, on that front, I think there is a matter of policy at hand where it's crucial for tech actors to consider the political implications of their contracts um, in terms of the policies that, are, that they facilitate um, the fulfillment of. So that's, that's one thing. But I also do think it is the case that governments should be extremely judicious about who they're contracting with and transferring power to. Um, and so big tech contracts, I think, should carry the, the stigma that the implications of their tools carry. Um, and this means, for example, that in the UK, I think there should be a formal review of the NHS data deals, um, which we are petitioning for, by the way. Um, and so 
I guess just thinking about when a government contracts with a with a technology company to fulfill services for its for its citizens um, and also for residents who may not hold the the position of citizen um, thinking about what power that transfers what it what it implies in terms of a hollowing out of the state um, and and thinking about also what rights we hold against these companies as opposed to our governments um, and how that how that will and does have disproportionate impact on people who may have less recourse to rights in in those situations then there's this is an interesting question right so a lot there are certain there's definitely organizing around technology corporations not mm -hmm. having contracts with certain either certain government agencies or to support certain programs or policies but do you think that they're so like we talked about in the past podcast that avril haynes is the biden's pick for director of national um, intelligence she used to work at palantir so do you think that there are certain corporations that government just shouldn't contract with at all yeah i think governments should be again extremely extremely judicious about who they're contracting with and transferring power to and allowing to have a say in the public's data. Um, personally, I, I would like to see a future where governments are not contracting with Palantir, um, just as an example. I think as a, like as a first step, there should be, you know, again, an extremely careful review um, in understanding, again, that governments should not contract with tech companies as a magical solution where technology is going to, you know, fly in and, and solve a problem in the more efficient way without any political consequences. Um, because as we've seen and continue to see, and as so many brilliant people have, have been talking about for years, that has never been the case and, and will never be the case. Yeah. I mean, maybe we could zero into on, on what like your report found in the contracts that you were able to get a hold of or that have been um, publicly reported on before between Palantir and private corporations, like particularly around, I thought the example of like both the NHS, the NHS data, as well as like the NY police department um, example were, were really, really um, key ones around like, and maybe you could explain like how, like what, what you found with those contracts and, and how Palantir was like leveraging this, this data um, for itself or its own like benefit? Sure, so I can speak especially more to the NHS contract. Um, and so what we found there was that the contracts that Palantir had with the NHS, the first one being for the value of a pound, which is a little frightening when you think about what- They got the contract for a pound. Like mm -hmm. they, they charged the UK government one pound. It was a one pound <laughs> contract, which is, you know, a thing that sometimes happened, but um, for me, that also raises questions around what the value of that contract is. Uh, yeah. um, and then the contract got renewed several months later for a lot more money. But in the initial contract, Palantir is allowed access to many, many, many types of personal data, including, I think, you know, political preferences and, and personal health information and all sorts of things. I don't have the the screenshot right in front of me, but in the 
in the renewed contract, the definitions of personal data are changed and narrowed. Um, and that raises one avenue in which there was no transparency around what types of data um, this private actor would have access to when we tried to ask the, through a freedom of information request for clarification around this, by the time that we got a response, the contract had already been changed. Mm. Um, and so again, there's just this question of what data are we allowing private entities to have access to and, and how does that potentially serve um, the work that they're doing? And I, I wanna be careful around using the term predictive policing and training data just because there is some contention from people within these companies about whether or not their tools qualify as that. But I mean, the fact that, you know, these tools are being used to police communities and again, usually communities of color, um, I think that indicates a lot about the kind of caution that we should have around, you know, allowing our data to be used to, um, to make these tools like more effective, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. It's interesting. I mean, looking beyond just Palantir, um, that's something that like Shoshana Zuboff documents in Surveillance Capitalism, which is that like these private corporations, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Palantir are like collecting data on us like citizens of states and um, like are not as bounded by like maybe laws that constrain like government collection of personal data, but then the governments buy that data from them. Um, do you think that there's something like, do you think that there's something new happening here where like the state is like literally outsourcing its surveillance power? I think that is an apt way of, of thinking about it. I would be careful to note that I think the surveillance capitalism model should be expanded and deepened to reflect how racially inflected um, and how deeply anti-migrant and anti-black the whole paradigm is both in terms of the technologies themselves and the utilizations of them. Um, but again, going back to this question of, of public-private partnerships, I think it is so important to think about when our governments are contracting with private entities, what services and, and, and actions does that imply are being privatized? And then when you think about that, what profit motives then get prioritized and what parts of our state infrastructure are, are being hollowed out? I think those are all important, important questions. Yeah, another thing that, that I was thinking about is, you know, there was very recently an example where like Nicholas Kristof had a op-ed in the New York Times about Pornhub and the like illegal content essentially that is on that site. And Visa and MasterCard decided to stop processing payments to the site. Um, and like pairing that with like similar things that have happened like over the years. So like, for example, like GoFundMe very publicly said it, like it would stop processing payments for militias. Um, so, so like, especially thinking about human rights, like implications, because as you brought up, right, like the state or like the government has like rights obligations to us that corporations like often do not. Um, so do you think 
do you think that we should be organizing around corporations and like is there something because like on the one hand you could say like that's awesome like these companies are going beyond perhaps what they were required or being forced to by law to do something like good that we support but on the other hand like so there's arguments around like for example like mark zuckerberg when he's being pushed to like moderate or take content off of facebook um like in a sense you're also giving him power because he has the power to like make these decisions beyond what like the state which is a demo like arguably a liberal democratic state depending on where you are um but but you know he he, he just that just gives him more power to to in a way police um uh like in the facebook case it's it's uh like the public sphere um so do you think we give corporations too much power when we lobby them directly do you think that we should or or do we need to do both we need to lobby the state and corporation um or like is there some implication that happens beyond like like you know um like lobbying corporations besides like lobbying the state to hold them accountable or to regulate them? Yeah, so I, I have a lot to say on this front. And I think the short answer is I, I think we should do both. Um, but it's important to think about how lobbying corporations directly sometimes can get twisted in terms of the implications of of technology and power on people who are already not being served by the state. Um, and so I think the, the Christoph article is an excellent example, right? So as as you might know, the the change in policy from Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal to not process payments to Pornhub is hugely and disproportionately impacting sex workers who rely on many of these platforms to be able to survive. Um, and I think this is, again, a situation where if you look closer at the so-called anti-human trafficking organizations that Christoph sources, um, they are, they end up being very much, um, towards the abolition of sex work, for example. And they have a lot of other value-based commitments that I don't know whether people are aware that they have. Um, and so thinking about when we talk about lobbying corporations, it's important to think about how what might seem at the forefront to be, you know, the right thing to do. Um, because of course it, it is terrible that MindGeek and Pornhub um, support and allow certain types of content that are exploitative. Um, it, it, it reflects and demonstrates a lack of listening to the people on the ground who have been doing and organizing around the implications of tech on marginalized communities for a very, very long time. Um, just like off the bat, there's so many people I could cite, but I like Melissa Garrett Grant reports on this. Um, Hacking and Hustling is an amazing sex worker tech collective that talks about the intersections of these issues. Um, and so I think it's important to think about how, for example, Facebook has, I think I, I read in, a, in an article by Samantha Cole, perhaps for Vice, around how Facebook also was reported to have several more abuse, um, like citations, but you would never hear about, you know, Facebook being 
potentially targeted to for for this kind of change whereas it is very easy for people to to go after um a platform that for better or for worse is is the livelihood for a lot of people and so i think my takeaway from that is that you know in these situations it's so important to to listen to what's been going on on the ground and who's been at the intersections of the material impact of these policies from day one. And so I think that leads into the second part of your question around there needing to be these regulatory um, changes from the state side as well. But again, that these should be informed by, in, in my opinion, these should be informed by movement and should be, we should be very careful about thinking about the material impact that these policies might have, which is not always predictable if you're not listening to to the people who they impact. Um, I do think that it is important for there to be a regulatory framework that has caught up with the technological, um, you know, speed train. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then going forward, like, what do you hope happens in or like what changes would you want to see in the technology sector and like and or what would you tell like a Biden administration to do um, about tech? First off, abolish ICE. Um, second of all, I, I very much hope to see a technology sector that works for its workers as opposed to working to concentrate wealth. Um, I hope to see a technology sector that works to liberate as opposed to a technology sector that, you know, works to continue already existing structural injustices. I would be very hopeful that the Biden administration in the best of possible worlds would invest in public interest technology would, you know, prioritize thinking about the intersections of technology with, for example, migration policy and foreign policy, um, and, you know, eventually abolish the police in all prisons as well. But that's for another time. <laughs> Maybe not under a Biden administration. Maybe not under a Biden administration, but I can dream, right? I guess I would just say, as a, as a final note, I think projects like this podcast that very intentionally bring together the implications of, of technology and the world around it are so crucial. And I, I would encourage anyone listening to think about how these tools have an impact right around you and not necessarily just in the abstract. Um, you know, if you're at a university, I promise you there is impact happening on, on your campus that you, you know, probably could care about. And, and probably should care about. And um, finally, join a union. Everyone should join a union. Oh, and sorry, one other thing I will plug is um, as part of our report, we are, again, we've had this petition up to have Parliament review the NHS data contracts. And so we're trying to mobilize folks around um, signing this petition to get Parliament to, to discuss and review the contracts. And I I would encourage anyone who's interested in, in thinking about the NHS data deals more broadly um, to check out our material on that and sign that petition if you are so inclined.
Thank you so much again to Malika for coming on the podcast to talk to us about No Tech for Tyrants. All of the articles, books, and petitions that Malika and I mentioned will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also sign up for the Anti-Dystopians email newsletter, which will contain these links and more. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.